Well, we're ready now to get into the Word of God uh, as a church on this Resurrection Sunday morning. And if you've got your Bibles, would you open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 19? We're going to be at the tail end of that chapter, and we're going to kind of make our way into the beginning of chapter 20. So John, chapter 19, verses 38 through chapter 20, verse 9. And I'm reading from the New International Version. And the title of this morning's message is, A Sure Resurrection. And you're going to pick up on that as we go through this, A Sure Resurrection. So John 19, 38. This is after Jesus has been crucified and He has died, and now they're giving Him His burial. So chapter 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put Him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial clothes that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that these words would penetrate our hearts we pray that you would minister to those in our listening audience. Father, you're able to tailor make a message, to dovetail a message to our hearts. And so you know exactly what is going on in every person's life that's listening to this right now. And I pray, oh God, that you would meet their needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. And Father, may we become more like Jesus because we've been here and listened to your message today. Bless your servant, hide him behind the cross, and may you be glorified, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you about a uh, British journalist and an attorney by the name of Dr. Frank Morrison. He had a tremendous drive to learn of Christ. What's strange about this is that this resurrection story captured his attention as a skeptic. In fact, he may have even called himself a strong agnostic. 
He was influenced by skeptic thinkers at the turn of the century, and he set out to prove intellectually and through verifiable facts that the story of Christ's resurrection was only a myth. His probings, however, led him to discover the validity of the biblical record in a moving, personal way. You may have heard of his book, Dr. Morrison's book. He authored, Who Moved the Stone? The book is considered by many to be a classic apologetic on the subject of the resurrection. I was doing some research for this sermon, and I was kind of wondering about those who were atheists at one time or agnostics or skeptics and how they made their way to Christ. What were the common denominators, the common characteristics that led people of unbelief to belief? And I found this online, why atheists changed their mind about God. And here are eight common factors that Matt Nelson put together. And here they are. Number one, here's the first reason that atheists change their mind about God. Number one, good literature and reasonable writing. Keep that in mind. Good literature and reasonable writing. Number two, experimentation with prayer and the Word of God. And experimentation is in quotes. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Number three, historical study of the Gospels. Number four, honest philosophical reasoning that gets to the mind of an atheist. Number five, reasonable believers. Not crazy or insane or running off into a bunch of feeling and just weird attitudes, but reasonable believers. Number six, modern advances and limitations in science. That helps an atheist to come to God. Two more. Number seven, evidence for the resurrection. And just a moment, I'll be talking about Lee Strobel and how he looked into the evidence of the resurrection and what he found about that. So that is a strong one. That's number seven. And then the last one, this one kind of took me by surprise. Why atheists change their mind about God? And here's the last one, beauty. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but even an atheist will tell you there are things that are just beyond this world that are beautiful. And so keep those things in mind. And that was by Matt Nelson, if you want to find that online. All right, let's talk about this idea about dabbling in prayer for an atheist. It's dangerous. So if you're an atheist and you're watching this, uh, I say tongue-in-cheek, be careful about dabbling in prayer because it may change your life. Renowned sci-fi author John C. Wright distinctly recalls a prayer he said as an adamant atheist. Here's his prayer. He prayed, Dear God, I know that you do not exist. Nonetheless, as a scholar, I am forced to entertain the hypothetical possibility that I am mistaken. So just in case I am mistaken, please reveal yourself to me in some fashion that will prove your case. If you do not answer, I can safely assume that either you do not care whether I believe in you or that you have no power to produce evidence to persuade me. If you do not exist, God, this prayer is merely words in the air, and I lose nothing but a bit of my dignity. Thanking you in advance for your kind cooperation in this matter, signed off in his prayer, John C. Wright. <laughs> well, Wright soon received the answer and effect. He did not expect this answer. A quote from him sometime later, Something from beyond the reach of time and space, says John C. Wright. More fundamental than reality reached across the universe and broke into my soul and changed me. I was altered down to the root of my being. It was like falling 
in love. <laughs> this adamant atheist, after he prays, God reveals himself to this agnostic atheist and he becomes a Christian. Lee Strobel, as I mentioned just a moment ago, this is the evidence of the resurrection. Uh, Lee Strobel, as you remember, he, he was a hardcore atheist. He was the editor of the Chicago Tribune. And he writes at the end of his investigation of the authenticity of the resurrection in The Case for Christ, that book and movie. Here's his quote. Strobel says, I'll admit it. I was ambushed by the amount and quality of the evidence that Jesus is the unique Son of God. I shook my head in amazement. I had seen defendants carted off to the death chamber on much less convincing proof. The cumulative facts and data pointed unmistakably toward a conclusion that I was entirely, excuse me, let me say that again. The cumulative facts and data pointed unmistakably towards a conclusion that I wasn't entirely comfortable in reaching. And so Lee Strobel just said, I'm going to follow the evidence where it leads and let the chips fall where they may. And I'll talk about that now. Lee Strobel in his journey, it wasn't an emotional decision for him. It was a step of intellectual faith, if we can put those two together. He used all the powers of his God-given intellect to listen to what God said in his word as he studied the resurrection and the person of Christ and all of his intellectual power bent and bowed in the presence of this Christ that he found to be unmistakably clear in his life. And he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ at a coffee table with his wife in their living room. <laughs> John 19, 38-42, Joseph and Nicodemus, they took the corpse of Jesus and wrapped it like a mummy. You wrap it up like a mummy. And remember, Joseph and Nicodemus, both Jewish men who were hiding their love and affection for Christ because they were afraid of what the Jewish rulers would say of them or, or do to them. So now they come and they, they get the corpse of Jesus. And that's one thing I want to make sure you know. To have a resurrection, you must have a corpse. It wasn't just a swoon theory. He wasn't just passed out. He wasn't just in a coma. He was dead. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. So they wrapped him up like a mummy with the spices and strips of linen. It's interesting, this word linen is the same word used whenever they wrap Jesus up as a baby in swaddling clothes. Now he's wrapped as a corpse in these same type of cloths in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So what they would do is they would put the dead person's hands across their chest. You've seen this before. It's just kind of in an X across their chest. And they'd take these about one foot wide strips of linen cloth and they would wrap the body. They would just kind of go around and around the body uh, from their shoulders, under their armpits, all the way down to their feet. So there was a head covering that they gave as well that was its own unique piece. It wasn't a part of that wrapping. And they would put that over the head, uh, that piece, and they would tie it under the chin to keep the jaw up. Just to kind of give you an idea, this is also in the Bible in John eleven forty four. Remember whenever Jesus went and raised Lazarus from the dead, the Bible says in John eleven forty four, Lazarus came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. As you said in the Bible, he's buried in a garden. And, and, and can you imagine if there's any sign of animation, any sign of life at all in this corpse, these two men will not bury Jesus. So that puts that theory to bed, that he was just swooning. He was just in a coma. No, he was stone cold dead. And they put him in this tomb and they put the large stone across the front. 
So he's dead. He's in the tomb. Well, chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday. They used to worship on Saturday, Orthodox Jews, and Orthodox Jews still do. But Messianic Jews will worship now on Sunday, the Lord's Day. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. While it was still dark. John really likes to key in on this word darkness or in the dark. Eleven times in John's writing is, is, is used of this, of this word darkness or being in the dark. And it has to do with the use of ignorance of divine things like Nicodemus. It's associated with wickedness and the resultant misery in hell. So while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, here it is, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now, who's we? Uh, In this account, John, it says it's just Mary Magdalene that goes. But in the other accounts of the gospel, it talks about two or three women going to the tomb. And so... If one is going, it also could be three. If, if two are going, it also could be three. So it's, it's plural there. So she says, and we don't know where they have put him. She assumes it's a kidnapping or a body snatching. She said, we don't know where he is. They've taken him out of the tomb. So just so you know, she doesn't go there expecting to see a resurrection. She goes there expecting to see a body. So the question, who moved the stone? That's a very important piece of of evidence. Who moved the stone? There's only two options. One, it would be the friends of Jesus. And they couldn't have done it. They they, they had Roman guards there, and they would have killed those disciples for trying that. The disciples were all scared. They were hiding in an upper room. And it wasn't until Mary Magdalene came back and said, the body of our Lord is gone. Then the disciples came to the tomb. They'd not even gone to the tomb in this whole process for fear that their life was on the line. So who moved the stone? If it wasn't his friends, well, was it his enemies? Well, that's ludicrous. His enemies were the ones who posted the guards there. They wanted Jesus to stay in that, in that tomb because Jesus had predicted that on the third day he would rise again from the dead. And the religious leaders were remembering that well more than the disciples were. And so they did not want that body stolen. So why was the stone moved? Why, why was the stone moved? A resurrected Jesus didn't need the stone moved, did he? Uh, don't you remember that Jesus, after he was resurrected, he walked through walls? Uh, he didn't need the stone root. He could have walked out of that cave while the stone was still in place. But yet Jesus had that stone moved so that the women could get in and see that he was raised. Matthew 28, 2, talking about this, says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled away the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. Now, this is probably whenever Mary returns. She's gone and talked to the disciples, and she returns, and she sees this angel. She may have gone two or three times to the tomb on that morning, just in her grief, going to to extend affection to Jesus. They say the stone could have weighed about a ton, 2,000 pounds, and the people that, that would buy the tomb, this was an unused tomb, that they'd have a stone that was carved out and placed up on the side of the, of the hill beside the mouth of the cave, and there would be a groove down underneath, and they'd have a peg, some wooden piece or rock that was there to hold that stone in place. After they took the body in, placed it on one of the shelves in the cave, which is now where the tomb is, they would come out, they would move that kickstand or that piece holding the stone back and that large stone would slide or roll into place and would lurch and stop in place at the mouth of that tomb. 
So that's the 2,000 pound stone. Uh, Billy Graham in his book called Angels said, can you imagine being that guard on that first Sunday morning? And you look up and you see an angel taking just his finger and moving that stone effortlessly out of the way, and then he sits upon the stone, as, as if to say, this is nothing. It's just all in a day's work. And the guards pass out, the Bible says. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Uh, John, very humble, like we talked about on Wednesday, he keeps referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he lets, he lets us know that he outran the older Peter. I want to look at something here very interesting. The word see, it's used three times in three verses. And all of these words see with the I are with three different meanings. So verse 5, John's there first. He beats Peter to the tomb and he bends over and he looked. There's our first word. He looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Okay, th- that word is blepo in Greek. It's, it's to, to have a glance, to just look. Like, like maybe you, you just take a glance at this behind me. You just, you just take a, a look. You see it with your eye. Or maybe my glasses. You see my glasses. It's just a look. It's a glance. That's the first word. So John just kind of takes a glance and he looks into the tomb. That's our first word. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, <laughs> and he just barges right into the tomb. Here's our second word, see. The Bible says that Simon Peter saw the strips of linen lying there. Theoreo is the Greek word, and we get our word theorize, or contemplate, or consider. Peter went to a different level of just, he's not just looking with a glance, he's theorizing. Uh, For instance, if you saw smoke billowing here behind me, and it's getting thicker and thicker, just dark smoke rolling out here behind me, Uh, While I'm preaching, you would theorize that there was a fire. (laughs) And if you see that, uh, Jared, please let me know. So blepo is the first, to see or to notice. And then theoreo is to contemplate, theorize or consider. So now Peter is inside the tomb and he's looking at the grave clothes and he is theorizing. He's contemplating. There's something more here. It's not just a casual glance or a look. He's theorizing. Before we look at our third word for see, I want to tell you about Josh McDowell, who was a strong atheist, grew up in a home where his parents, uh, his dad was an alcoholic. His parents were not good to him. Um, Josh McDowell even suffered all kinds of horrific abuse that I will not even say uh, on this video. Uh, And so he grew up hating God, thinking, why would a, a loving God allow that to happen to him? So he just refuted that there was even a God because of his pain. And he went off to college and there were Christians around him, and he saw something so different about their lives. There was a pristine walk that they had. There was a joy that they had. There was a love in their hearts that he had never seen before, and he was drawn to that, but still very skeptical as he talked to these Christians. Well, something that Josh McDowell says after he becomes a Christian, I'll relate some more of that story in just a moment, but something he said as he studied the resurrection, Josh McDowell said this, the first thing that stuck in the minds of the disciples was not the empty tomb, but rather the empty grave clothes, undisturbed in form and position. Verse 6 tells us, Peter saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth, 
that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, if you're a detective and you're going in to look at this and you're, somebody says, it's a body snatcher, well, you could disprove that very quickly. If you're trying to hurry in and steal a body, you're not going to take time to unwind the grave cloths and put them there and then take carefully the head cloth off and fold it up and lay it down. Criminals don't have time to be neat. They get in, they get their goods, and they get out. So if this were indeed body snatchers, this disproves that. This is a firm piece of evidence if you're looking for pieces of evidence to see the resurrection of Jesus. So Josh McDowell says that it was the undisturbed grave clothes that first alerted the disciples. One thing that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about, and you may not see it because you don't see it written there. All four of them give us the same idea, but it's not written down. Have you thought about that? All four of them talk about the resurrection, but they don't talk about one key part. No one ever sees him rise. It's before he's, he's put in the grave, then they put him in, they put the, to- the stone over, and then the next thing you see, he is alive. No one saw him resurrected. That's pretty cool. I, as I was studying, I thought, boy, that's, that's true. We didn't, I didn't think about that. There it is. So our first word is blepo. That's just to take a glance. Number two, the second word that we saw in the scriptures is theoreo, and that's to contemplate or theorize, consider. And our third word, and this is the most important one, so don't miss this, it's ido, E-I-D-O, ido. And it means to understand or to put something together, to figure it out. When I was in middle school, I was taking Algebra 2, and I was struggling with it. And my mom and dad would sit with me at our table, and we'd work on this at night. And I remember it would take 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour of working on these algebraic equations. And then got into geometry and then remembering the formulas. And uh, I remember being so frustrated. I would stare at it, and I would think about it, and I would contemplate. And my parents were so patient with me, working with me on mathematics. And I remember whenever they would explain it in a certain way, somehow, some way, I would get it. It would snap into place. And I'd, ah, now I see. And after that, once you learn that theory, once you learn that, that, uh, that quote, that uh, equation, once you learn those formulas, you could work any math problem you wanted to. And so uh, that's the same idea here, is that you're working it through, you're reasoning it, reasoning it out. It's not just a quick glance. It's not just theorizing, but it's actually putting your mind to it and trying to figure out what has happened that you're seeing. And so that's an I get it, an aha moment, a serendipity. And the disciples had this, and that's what it says there about Peter. It's interesting, right there in verse 6. Peter saw the strips of linen lying there. And then in verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And here's our word, Ido. John saw and believed. That is crucial. It's not just a look. It's not just theorizing. It's looking and letting that click in your mind or in your heart, the resurrection of Jesus. What about you? What about you, church? You may see the words on the Bible page about Jesus' resurrection, and that's it. You just read over it like it's the morning newspaper. Or maybe you theoreo the story. You theorize. You're thinking about it and considering the claims of Christ. That's a good thing. Keep moving. Keep moving. Or maybe for the first time this morning, wherever you are, 
for the first time, the Holy Spirit is now helping this to click in your mind. It's an Ido moment starting to click, to come together. Just maybe your skepticism is fading as the truth and evidence of this powerful and sure resurrection is continually building in you. As I studied different atheists who had become Christians in preparation for this sermon, one thing that I found was not one of them was it a quick decision. Nobody made a snap decision. These very intelligent and bright people, way smarter than I'll ever be, all of them took sweet time and analyzed the facts until the weight of each of those facts, one upon the other, built on them, and it began to crack their hard heart, and they had to say, you know what? All of the evidence is airtight. It points to a resurrection. When I was in, um, maybe I was in youth ministry, um, I was online talking to an atheist, and on and on and on, just back and forth, battling it out. It was kind, it was cordial, but it was just, it was just never ending. And I would give my point, and he'd give his counterpoint. I'd give, uh, he'd give another point, I'd give a counterpoint, back and forth. And we never got anywhere. And, and an older lady in the church, wiser than I am, read through that post, and she said, she said, um, you know, uh, you have to, one thing you want to do is when you're talking about anything to an unbeliever or a skeptic or an atheist is to focus on the resurrection. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, everything else can fall into place. If God can raise a dead body, he can do anything. And so I began to focus on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead with this atheist. I didn't see any movement in him, but uh, I, I, I trust that the word of God did its work. Charles Wesley, uh, hymn writer, brother of John, And can it be, Charles Wesley wrote, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's my prayer for every person listening to this who is not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, that the chains might fall off, that your heart might be free, that you might rise, go forth, and follow Jesus. And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. As I said before, Josh McDowell, the author and apologist, he wrote the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, as a college student, as I said, he studied to show Christians that they were wrong, but he was overwhelmed by the strength of the evidence for a resurrection. Evidence led him to God. Don't miss this point. The evidence led him to God, but it wasn't the evidence that saved Josh McDowell. It was the love of God being expressed through other Christians that was the overwhelming draw to come to Christ. You, my friend, can have all of the logic in the world. You can have all the facts lined up that can lead you to God. The airtight resurrection can lead you to God, but that won't save you. It's not the assimilation of facts that saves you. It's putting your faith in the person that was raised from the dead. And his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. My prayer for you is that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ. A song that you're going to hear in just a moment is, 
Oh, how he loves you and me. I wonder, folks, if, if I, as I say these words aloud to us right now, if you'd let them just kind of roll across your heart. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. And then the final chorus says this, Jesus to Calvary did go, his love for sinners to show. What he did there brought hope from despair. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. We're going to pray together. And I want to give just a moment for you as I pray that if you'd like to receive Christ as your personal Savior today, Resurrection Sunday, 2020, that Christ is knocking at your heart's door right now and He wants to come in and fellowship with you and you with Him, I beckon you to do I, I, I beg you. I, I believe that God is speaking to your heart even now. And if you're ready to take that step of faith, much like Lee Strobel did, much like Josh McDowell, much like Dr. Morris and all of these men, after they sorted through all the facts, they came to a point when it was like Jesus said, you've got all the facts. Will you now take a step of faith and join me in a love relationship? So I'm going to pray, but I'm going to give you opportunity to receive Christ today. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for this high and holy day, Resurrection Sunday. Really my favorite day of the Christian calendar. And I thank you, Father, for being with us today. As Christians around the 24 time zones are celebrating today, Lord, I pray you'd be glorified. Lord, I pray that you would edify the saints as they've heard these facts, these sure and solid pieces of evidence about the resurrection. I pray that their faith would be strengthened. And then, Lord, for the skeptic, the agnostic, the atheist, my friends, I pray for them, Father. They're not the enemy. I pray that these facts, as they study these even on their own, I pray that they would just feel the weight of each of these facts, piece by piece by piece. One piece of logic upon another upon another would make sense to their mind. And then, Lord, at the end of that, by faith, that they would say, Oh, God, I recognize my need of you. I recognize that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Lord, I can't save myself. I'm not good. I'm actually evil. The things I do in my private life, the things that nobody else knows about, God, you see those things, and yet you still love me. So right now, Father, I open my heart to you. I ask that you would let your Son come and live in me and cleanse me, forgive me of all my sins, and write my name in the Lamb's book of life. Father, I thank you in the assurance of faith that the same way you raised Jesus from the dead, you will raise us from the dead because we have placed our faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us. We pray these things in the strong and matchless name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.